Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The Senate filibuster is a tool the minority party can use to prevent action on all but the least controversial matters. By requiring 60 votes to limit debate on a topic and move on to voting, that is, ending a filibuster, the minority party has a powerful tool at its disposal. However, the Senate has special rules that still enable the majority party to act. Molly Reynolds, fellow in governance studies and frequent contributor to this podcast in her What's Happening in Congress series, has written the book on these special Senate rules. In Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate, just published by the Brookings Institution Press, she argues that these procedures represent a key instrument of majority party power in the Senate. On the show today, my Brookings Press colleague Bill Finan talks with Molly about her new book. Stay tuned in this episode for another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. You can get the latest show information by following the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And now, here's Bill Finan. Thanks, Fred, and hello, Molly. Congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you. Your book begins by discussing what I'm willing to bet is the one word most people often think of when they hear Senate or Senator, and that's filibuster. What is a filibuster exactly? Sure. So, first of all, it's great to be here to chat about the book. So, I think in the contemporary Senate, the best way to think about the filibuster is just an inability for the Senate to get to a vote on something. So, debate is generally unlimited in the Senate because the Senate rules and precedents generally lack specific ways to restrict debate. So, most simply, once the senator is recognized to speak on the floor, And the Senate's presiding officer, a senator, must recognize someone seeking to speak if no other senator is speaking or wants recognition. That senator can speak for as long as he or she wants. Since the early 20th century, the Senate has had a way, known as cloture, to cut off debate. But as we know, that requires the support of three-fifths of the Senate to adapt. And so as the Senate has become more partisan and more polarized over time, we've seen more filibusters. So there's more of an expectation that both individual senators and their parties will exploit the procedural rights that they have, including the filibuster, to get what they want. And the Senate is now a place where in each election there's more competition for party control. And so that's really increased the value of the filibuster to senators and to their parties. So historically, when did it first come into use, the filibuster? Sure. So we've seen it periodically in different forms, basically throughout the course of the Senate's history. There's an important moment for all you Hamilton fans out there. Aaron Burr has a special part in the creation of the contemporary filibuster. Prior to the early 19th century, the Senate had what's called a previous question motion, which is one way to end debate. And then, thanks to Aaron Burr, it was removed in the early 19th century. And so we've seen the filibuster, like I said, used in various ways over the course of the Senate's history. But really, since the mid-1970s, we've seen an increase in the frequency of its use. So that moment in Mr. Smith goes to Washington, that epic moment when he's filibustering has become a common occurrence, as you said. In so years. Um, the, the Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of filibuster, the famous one where someone goes to the Senate floor and speaks for a really long time, is less common. So we, we would call that a talking filibuster, but that's a little less common than just using the existence of procedure for senators and parties to get what they want. We do still occasionally see senators go to the floor and speak for really long periods of time. 
There was a recent example with um, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut who gave an all-night speech on gun control. That was a talking filibuster. But in general, in the current Senate, it's more just the existence of the procedure that shapes debate. You write that one of the ingrained effects of the filibuster is the belief that nearly all measures need at least 60 votes to pass in the Senate, not just a simple majority of 51. In fact, our current president appeared to make that argument when it came to the failure of the most recent attempt to repeal and replace Obamacare. But your book shows that's not always the case. Exceptions to the rule tells us about some of these senatorial procedures that are designed to allow the Senate to work on a simple majority basis. Mm -hmm. You call these majoritarian exceptions. Before we explain what these are, though, can you briefly describe, and you began to do that a little bit at the beginning, of how debate works in the Senate? Sure. So there are basically three sources for what governs how things play out on the Senate floor. So there's the Senate's formal rules. If you pull the Senate rule book off the shelf, it has a list of rules. In addition to the Senate's formal rules, the Senate has a set of precedents, which are really just interpretations of the rules. Like any set of rules, what's in the Senate's formal rule book doesn't speak to every possible situation. And then the third group of things that govern what happens on the floor are laws that contain provisions governing debate. And so in this last category are these provisions that I look at in this book that basically prevent the possibility of a filibuster on certain pieces of legislation. And the way that they do that is by stipulating that a certain amount of time is allowed for debate. So you referenced the recent health care bill, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. But uh, it is being handled under a special set of procedures known as budget reconciliation. And the reconciliation process limits reconciliation bills to 20 hours of debate on the Senate floor. And it's these provisions that are included in particular laws that uh, govern debate on particular procedures that I call majoritarian exceptions. And I call them that because, one, they make the Senate more majoritarian than usual. So they empower simple majorities instead of supermajorities. As you mentioned, at this point, we usually think about the Senate as a supermajoritarian 60-vote institution. So these special procedures um, empower simple majorities. And then because they're also an exception to the overall pattern. So we talked a little bit at the top about the prevalence of filibusters in the contemporary Senate. And because these rules prevent the possibility, these procedures prevent the possibility of a filibuster, They're really an exception to that pattern. Um, Importantly, they can also limit amendments to the bills that they govern consideration of on the floor. They can do things to prevent bills from getting stuck in committee. But the big way and the most important way in which they differ from the Senate's usual operating procedures is by, again, limiting the amount of time for debate and by doing that, preventing the possibility of a filibuster. In the book, you explore a number of examples of majoritarian exceptions. Uh, A special focus, and one you just mentioned now, is the budget reconciliation procedure, and one that's, of course, been in the news a lot. Budget reconciliation has been used to attempt to overturn Obamacare most recently. We saw probably perhaps one of the first times it's really reached a general public, even though it's been used quite often. Mm -hmm. What is exactly budget reconciliation? Budget reconciliation is an optional part of the congressional budget process. And basically what it does is it So each year, Congress is supposed to adopt a budget resolution, which is a high-level document that sets out levels of spending and revenue for the coming fiscal year and future fiscal years. And in that resolution that Congress is supposed to take up every year, they can include what are called reconciliation instructions. And those instructions tell particular committees in Congress to work on legislation that would make some amount of budgetary change to 
some programs that they oversee. So this year, the reconciliation process was triggered for the Finance and Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committees in the Senate and for the Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce Committees in the House. And so each of those committees was supposed to report out legislation that would make $1 billion in deficit reduction, so cut federal spending by a billion dollars. And then once they do that, that piece of legislation comes to the floor of the Senate under these special procedures that prevent a filibuster. So it's really a way to make certain kinds of budgetary change. And as you mentioned, it has been used to do pretty important things since the early 1980s. So obviously— And that's when it was first came into being in the early 80s, right? Yeah. So it was created in 1974 as part of the Congressional Budget Act, but it began to be used— closer to the way that we think about it today in the early 1980s. And yes, this year has been a a moment where it's gotten quite a lot of attention. We've seen it talked about quite a lot before. So in 2010, when Congress was originally passing the Affordable Care Act, budget reconciliation played an important role in that process as well. It also was involved in the Clinton welfare reform bill in the mid-90s, the creation of the Children's Health Insurance Program in 1997 major tax cuts under President Bush. So while it it does seem like we're paying a lot of attention to it right now, this is not the only time that it's been used to do or attempted to be used to do important things. What exactly is it being used for now to repeal and replace Obamacare? Or how was it being used to try to repeal and replace Obamacare? Sure. So because attempting to repeal and replace parts of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare is a really major Republican policy priority, but Republicans do not have... 60 votes in the Senate. They only have 52 Republican senators. The idea was that they could try and use this special process that allows them to do something with just a simple majority of votes in the Senate to make those changes. And so we've had a number of different proposals on the table as reconciliation bills, as part of the reconciliation process this this year. But in general, the proposals have involved making some changes to the tax code, so some changes to roll back some taxes that were put in place as part of the Affordable Care Act, accompanied by some changes to the Medicaid program, so the program that funds health insurance for low-income individuals, as well as some other changes to the kind of way that Obamacare regulates the individual health insurance marketplaces. Do you think we're going to see another attempt within the Senate? It's a great question. It's certainly the case that we have declared this year's Obama care repeal efforts um, dead more than once this year, only to see them come back. I think that the biggest challenge going forward is that Republicans, particularly in the Senate, have simply not been able to come up with a plan that gets the support of 50 of their 52 members. So uh, they considered several different alternatives on the floor of the Senate, and none of them got the votes of a simple a simple majority of Republican senators. And so it's not clear to me at this point where you would how you would come up with a new proposal that gets that majority support, but we will see. You also talk in the book about something called delegation exceptions. What are those? So delegation exceptions are situations where there's some change that Congress wants to make, some policy change. But Congress is really worried about 
being blamed by their constituents for the negative consequences of that change. And so what they do is they give some power to a particular actor, so either someone inside of Congress or outside of Congress, the president or otherwise, to come up with a proposal to make some kind of change. And then that proposal comes back to Congress and to the Senate where it can't be amended and it can't be filibustered. And the idea here is that it allows Congress to do something it wants to do, but it allows them to avoid some of the blame for maybe negative consequences that are going to fall on their particular constituents for doing this. And the example you give in the book to illustrate this is a Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. How it was moved through Congress. Perhaps you can give yeah, so, a few details on that. So first, let's think just a little bit about sort of why trade is something that's hard for Congress to legislate on. So to the extent that we think there are benefits from free trade agreements, we generally think that they're kind of felt broadly across the population, but not in a way that individual people people are necessarily going to notice terribly easily. The costs of trade agreements, though, are pretty concentrated and will tend to fall on particular geographic areas where whatever industries have been affected by the new trade agreement are located. And so, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, exactly, Ohio. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we talked about NAFTA in the 90s, there was a lot of stuff about, like, citrus growers and agriculture interests because of crops that would be coming in from Mexico, that sort of thing. So because Congress might want to see the general benefits of free trade, but individual members of Congress are worried about the costs on their particular constituents, they needed to try and find a way to get out of this. And so what they did, again, starting in the early 70s, is periodically give to the president the ability to negotiate trade agreements. And then those trade agreements would come back to Congress for an up or down vote and they couldn't be amended. So that would prevent the possibility of, say, a trade agreement coming back, but a senator from Wisconsin, to use your example, or Pennsylvania or Michigan, trying to change something about the trade agreement to be more favorable to their particular state, which runs the risk of the entire bargain unraveling. And it also makes it harder for international trade negotiators to say to our negotiating partners, you know, this deal is the deal that's going to stick if it has to go back to Congress and Congress can make all kinds of changes. So that's kind of the general reason why trade is an attractive area for Congress to use these special procedures. And as you mentioned, we saw this most recently in 2015 with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so that became a really salient issue after Republicans regained control of the Senate in 2014, after the 2014 elections, they were able to get that fast-track authority for the president through Congress. When they did that, they needed to be careful about trying to balance the benefits to the party of being able to um, say that they were working towards this new trade agreement with the potential costs of perhaps giving the Obama administration too big of a win. Mm-hmm. So again, it was important to get the overall win on the issue, but they wanted to make sure it, was, it wasn't too closely tied to Obama. The trade example is also a really good example of how the underlying politics of these things can change rapidly and how closely decision-making about these procedures are connected to particular policy changes. That's one of the arguments that I, that I make in the book. Political scientists often think about, when we think about um, things like procedural change in Congress, are these sort of principal decisions that members are making about how they think the institution should work? Mm-hmm. Or are they really connected to current political realities? One of the arguments that I make in the book is that we should think about them, particularly the kinds of procedures that I'm studying, as much more just sort of related to particular policy issues on the agenda. So when we see a new set of 
of procedures developed, we really should think of them in the context of what policy change would they help implement in the near future. And so I think that the trade case is really is a really good one of that. So, so context really matters. I wanted yeah. to come back to a couple of issues that have also been in the news that you mm-hmm. write about in the book. And one is the use of the majoritarian exception to review certain executive branch regulations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned several occasions in which Senate Republicans attempted to thwart Obama administration regulations, including especially environmental regulations during the Obama administration. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. What you're talking about is something called the Congressional Review Act, which was passed in the mid-90s and then went largely unused until the start of the Trump administration. It was used successfully once in 2001 at the start of the Bush administration. But this spring, we saw congressional Republicans take advantage of their ability to roll back regulations that were promulgated by the executive branch using this procedure that prevents that legislation from being filibustered. And so one of the reasons that it is sort of hard to use this tool and why Republicans were largely unsuccessful at doing it during the Obama administration is because it still needs the signature of the president. So Congress, even in the absence of a filibuster in the Senate, Congress could pass a Congressional Review Act resolution that would roll back a newly promulgated regulation. But if the president vetoes that piece of legislation and Congress doesn't have the necessary supermajority to override the veto, then the measure that rolls back the regulation won't go into effect. But when you have a situation where you have a change in party control of the White House, we often have this window where Congress would be able to do this. And that's what we saw this spring. And it was a really important, I think, way for Republicans to rack up some early legislative victories in the Trump administration. So they came into office in January, Republican majorities in both houses, but not a terribly clear path forward on health care, as we've seen, or taxes, which are the two big legislative priorities. And so what they were able to do was sort of take some of these regulations that had been finalized at the end of the Obama administration, kind of take them off the shelf and roll them back and be able to say, look, here are some big things that we did. We did them, it turns out, with special procedures that prevented them from being filibustered. But we can Mm. say that these are are things we were able to do. So it seems to me like that's something that might find its way before the Supreme Court at some point, right? Uh, This executive legislative branch tension about being able to pull back on executive orders like that? These are regulations that— um, Or they're not executive orders. Right. Are so they're they? promulgated okay, yeah. through right. the, the notice and comment rulemaking process. And given that the Congressional Review Act resolutions still have to be signed by the president, and if they're not signed by the president, they would need the president's veto to be overridden. That, I think, gets around some of those issues. Uh, so I began reading the book with the hope that these exceptions might point— to a future way out of gridlock, something you addressed right at the beginning of the book too. But in your conclusion, you argue that won't be the case. Can you tell listeners why? I like to think that I'm generally a pretty optimistic person, but I wouldn't want anyone to leave the book thinking that the procedures that I write about are a solution to all of our problems. And part of that is because, as I show in the book, when they're created, they tend to be created in situations where they're going to help the majority party in the Senate. So right now, the Republicans 
past periods the Democrats, but they've been created when creating them is going to help the majority party um, probably stay in power in the future. And as I show in the book, in the context of reconciliation, they're also used in ways that should help the majority party stay in power in the future. And so as a result, it can be challenging to get members of the minority to go along with the idea of creating them, which can be necessary since, after all, they're included in regular pieces of legislation, and a regular piece of legislation has to itself overcome the threat of a filibuster. So we can and do see them in particular cases. We've seen a couple of new ones crop up in recent years. There's a point that I talk about in the conclusions of the book about how they've been used to help us get out of a couple of our recent um, showdowns over the debt limit, which is also an issue that's coming back soon. Um, Mm -hmm. So they're important and they have helped usher in to law some important policy changes, but I don't see them as the big solution to getting out of all of our gridlock problems. Molly, thank you again for coming by to talk to us about your new book, Exceptions to the Rule. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Let's take a quick break here to hear another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. The U.S. economy has been growing for 98 months now. That's a long time by historical standards. Unemployment is low. Employers are hiring. Corporate profits are strong. Banks have stronger capital cushions. They're less likely to topple over. Inflation is quiescent. Consumer confidence is up. Housing prices, not everywhere, but on average across the country, are back to their 2006 peak. Expansions do not die of old age. Something has to kill them. So I've been thinking a bit about what could disrupt this one. What could trigger the next recession? In the late 20th century, there was a pattern. The economy would grow and grow as demand outstripped the capacity of the economy to supply it. Prices would rise. In reaction, the inflation-fighting Federal Reserve would raise interest rates. Recession would ensue. But that scenario seems very unlikely now. So what could tip the economy into recession? One, finance. The Great Recession was caused by a bursting housing bubble and a financial panic. Now, the financial system is stronger and regulation tougher than it was, but there's still a chance that an unanticipated disturbance somewhere in the global financial system, the bond market, banks in Europe, banks in China, something involving Brexit, will spill over into the economy where the rest of us live and work. Two, China. It's now the world's second largest economy and a major trading nation. So what happens in China doesn't stay in China any longer. China's growth lately has been fueled by borrowing, borrowing by governments, by households, and by businesses. Non-financial debt in China is now about 250% of gross national product and headed to 300% over the next five years. The International Monetary Fund is warning that could end badly. Three, confidence. So far, the U.S. economy, and to a large extent, consumers, businesses, and the financial markets have shrugged off the chaos in the White House, the dysfunction in Congress, the tensions with North Korea, and the recurring incidents of terrorism. So far. But confidence can evaporate suddenly. And if a whole lot of people decided about the same time that, gee, the world looks a little scary, so I'm going to hold off on buying and investing for a bit to see where things are going, well, the economy can change direction with surprising speed. And four, competence. Look, bad things happen. 
terrorism, natural disasters, bank failures, market crashes, miscalculations between well-armed superpowers. And we depend on the grown-ups and our national leadership to handle them with as few mistakes as humanly possible. 9-11 was horrible, but we got through it. The global financial crisis was severe, but we didn't repeat the Great Depression. Now, the Trump administration really hasn't been tested yet. Almost every controversy, save perhaps North Korea, is one that the president or Republicans in Congress have created themselves. So there's one very big question hanging over all of us. Does the Trump administration have the capacity, the people, the leadership, the process, the trust to manage an unanticipated shock so it doesn't tank the economy? Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 